Okay, so now out of the train station, I'm just thinking about navigating my way to the Women's Library in Bridgeton now. I know the museum has worked really hard to connect with its local community. I think that's one of the things we've really talked about a lot in the last five to ten years in museums. How do we become really participatory spaces? How do we make those connections that are meaningful and hand over some of our authority? Glasgow Women's Library is one of the best examples of an organisation that's been able to do that. <laughs> I've just been guided round the corner by a clunk on the head from our producer Lucy Harland, which is a nice and subtle way of getting me to turn left and head for the iconic sign for Glasgow Women's Library. Hot on the politics, hot on feminism and hot on branding. So we're just turning into Glasgow Women's Library now, going through the door. And the first thing you see is Glasgow Women's Library. Hello, everyone, and welcome. What a nice way to enter the building. And a sign saying, the doors are quite heavy. Please ring if you need assistance. So we'll push through now. Hi, I'm Sharon. I'm from Space Invaders Network, and we're here to see Adele Patrick. Hey, Adele, drops bags, goes in for a hug. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant. It's such a wretched day. Lovely oh, to no, see it's, you. it's a great day. It's a good day to be in Glasgow. It's a good day to be here doing our first podcast. I'm so excited. Hi, I'm Sharon Heal, and I'm presenting the first episode of the Space Invaders podcast. In my day job, I'm the director of the Museums Association, but I'm doing this podcast as part of the Space Invaders campaign to claim equal space for women in museums. We're campaigning for three things, equal power and influence for women, particularly at leadership level, fair working conditions that meet our needs, and a greater focus on women's stories in collections and displays. We're a network of activists working in museums, and so far we've brought together hundreds of people to talk about how we create change. If you want to find out more, search for Space Invaders online or follow us on Twitter. We know there's lots of interest in what we're doing, so we're trying podcasting in the hope of reaching out to more people who share our ambition for change. Our first guest is Adele Patrick, the Lifelong Learning and Creative Development Manager at Glasgow Women's Library. Adele is an award-winning activist and a global leader in feminist museum practice. Her deep commitment to equality drives her work, the library's work, and how the library is led and managed. Adele is a Claw Fellow, and I'm delighted that she's agreed to talk with us. Welcome to the Space Invaders podcast, Adele. Delighted to be here. It's just such a pleasure. So, shall we start with Glasgow Women's Library? Can you tell us a little bit about the story of the library so far? Yeah, I suppose it's important to restate and state again that the library was developed almost as a, a countercultural response to the museum offer in the mainstream. So it's it's grown really trying to look at the gaps in the history and what's not represented, but also almost like as a, a space where the vision of what the future of institutions might be, creating almost like an incubation space for feminist ideas, for creatives, and for, I suppose, the seeding of ideas for what the future might look like. You talk about an incubator space. What does that, what is that, what's being born out of that incubator space? 
we have a wonderful reference in London Library here. We've got an accredited collection of national significance here. We've got archives. We've obviously got materials that are of significance that map the ways that women have changed history, the way that they've lived their lives, the way that they've been involved in campaigning for change. So that's a sort of wonderful, inspiring space to be working in and and bringing people in and, and them seeing themselves reflected in a collection in a really profound way. But I suppose also we've been experimenting throughout with thinking about the different ways that an organisation might function. This sounds quite strategic. It's really been very much more organic, uh, very much more trial and error, lots of heartache, lots of mistakes made. I suppose the the lodestar for the organisation is how could things be different? So I've been thinking a lot the last wee while, especially over the Claw leadership period, about, I think, what Adrienne uh, Marie Brown talks about, the way that institutions have sort of almost been developed and visioned and imagined through a specific mindset, um, that they've been created reflecting a different type of imagination than the one that maybe I have or you have or certainly uh, women of colour or trans people or others might have. So... What we've been trying to do is just think, well, if if it was through our lens and that really diverse lens, because the Women's Library has always been sort of intersectional in its thinking and uh, tried to be as inclusive as possible, I would hope in all senses we are the community. You know, we're not working with a community. We are reflective of a, of a community. That we're trying to sort of build something that is almost like built on the imagination of us rather than the imagination, for example, of the stale male pale poop people or the people who've got beards or the people, you know, uh, that this is this is something different that's gradually been developed. People might be able to tell from your accent that you're from the same neck of the woods as me. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey and how you ended up in Glasgow? I grew up in Doncaster and my teenage years were sort of really spent during the white heat of Thatcherism. Actually, the museum and the library that was on on the street that I lived on was just you know one of those classics free spaces that offered solace comfort inspiration you know it was just one of those wonderful memorable places for me growing up and I think this is something critical about museum spaces um, and library spaces that idea of a, a free space with the power to convene, as as Mercy McCann puts it in museum activism, that whole idea of a space that is owned collectively and represents people, but also has this sort of the incubation capacity that we mentioned earlier on. I feel like there was that desire seeded at that moment to create something that remained. I'm convinced every day that physical encounters with objects, physical encounters with people, the chance encounters, the chance friendships. I was hearing yesterday about some unbelievable friendships that had been catalyzed around an event in the in the library or a, a meeting that had taken place or coming coming across materials and these really deep and meaningful connections between people actually forged in in our spaces you know, it just wouldn't happen if it, if it was an online resource. 
I get the impression that a lot of that is because it was forged in activism and out of activism and also because from the beginning you had this idea of feminist leadership. So that that I think is something that we're keen to explore as the Space Invaders Network and a lot of people out there in the sector, a lot of women are looking for different models of leadership and, and trying to subvert the normal model. So can you explain a bit about that evolution of feminist leadership in terms of how you evolved it in the in the women's library and what it, what it means today i think um there's a real distinction between feminists who might them, find themselves working in a command and control structured organizational context and women who have found themselves or guys who have found themselves working in a context that is rooted in a values-led, equality, diversity and inclusion-focused organisation. So Women's Library grew out of that countercultural response to structural inequality. So it's, it's going to have a different type of structural and organisational framework. And that's evolved over, over time. But I do sort of feel like it's such a complex uncoupling that has to happen. And it's a huge endeavour for a lot of people who find themselves where maybe they're in a situation where they have feminist values and they feel that they have to park them at the door when they go to work or they can unleash it in various sorts of caucusing within the institution and I think we need to sort of think wider and deeper than that I feel like there's a sort of that the sector has reached certainly in terms of the mainstream sector has reached a real critical, exciting impasse, if that's not a contradiction in terms, that it's almost like, okay, has the incremental change objective worked? Or are we now talking about challenges that are more about seismic changes within the institutional structures? And during the CLO leadership, I have been looking a lot at this and looking at lots of other institutions and organisations that have been developed along the countercultural impetus, um, how they might have something to offer the mainstream and not just sort of generating more and more countercultural models without sort of addressing challenges in the mainstream. And that's a really interesting point, isn't it? How do we get the grassroots, organic, countercultural model into the big hierarchical institutions. And I guess that's what a lot of us who work in the sector feel. And certainly when we run events, people say, well, I want change. And I know the women who want change and some of the men who want change in my institution, but it's so hard to bring it about. So I think, you know, it would be interesting to explore whether a model of feminist leadership could, can do that and, and how, and also what it looks like in your organisation, Adele, because I know you have a particular model of how you work in terms of governance and staff and volunteers do you want to talk about that a little bit we are a hierarchy in the women's library so we do have a board we've got uh, two senior managers I'm, I'm one of them and then we do have this very flat structure in terms of management so we've got this very extruded line of uh, colleagues who are working in lots of different sectors but I suppose I could give an example we set up uh, about five years ago these creative clusters we really were thinking okay a lot of the ways that our operations are determined is by modeling or mirroring this command and control patriarchally organized pyramidal way of working a lot of the 
roles and so on and so forth. It, it's also reflecting the funders' ideas, and often the funders are very much our allies, but sometimes they can ha cause stuck areas in an organisation or maybe giving us unhelpful roles, titles. So we we were got a, a gathering of all the board and, and all the staff to sort of say, well, actually, if we were to say what we do here and what are the key areas of work and the key areas of our thinking what would they be and we so we came up with seven different category areas from active welcoming to our space which was all about the environment that we work in so we had these different zones we wanted to unleash the creative potential and the energies of staff Sorry yes. to interrupt, Adele. And, and do people self-select in areas of interest? So if you're a volunteer who maybe works front desk, but you're interested in programming, you can go along to that creative cluster? Precisely. So we've got very few rules. So we've got one rule is I can't be in more than two creative clusters, uh, <laughs> which is good. But also the rest of the team as well, staff team, can be in two creative clusters. I think we've got nine now. So we have a brilliant finance worker who's brilliant at her job, but she's fanatical about green stuff. So she's on the green cluster and we get the benefit of all her energy and fantastic solution-focused thinking in that area. But she is getting to know a board member who's got a similar interest, getting to know volunteers, but also we're getting an opportunity because we're not as diverse a team that, as I would like. We're, that's obviously an ongoing you know, mission for the organisation to be more and more inclusive. Clusters enable that to happen as well. So you're getting that combination of go-to people from outside the organisation who are maybe have lived experience of, of discrimination in ways that some of us might not, that you're getting that lovely cross-cutting going, but you're also developing and embedding leadership across the organisation because the another rule in the creative clusters is that they can only deal with stuck areas. So they're not just incubating loads and loads of ideas. That's a, We have a surfeit of ideas in this organisation, so it's, we don't need more ideas necessarily, but we need more people to feel like they are coming up with the solutions for the organisation and being really respected for having done that. In that process, you'd hope that they get some sort of idea about their leadership acumen and also they're getting to know board members and recognising that actually I could be a board member somewhere else because that's been demystified for me in this process. A final thing that I wanted to say around that as well, and I think it's characteristic of a feminist approach, is that in that process of working, you're enabling people to have an equal share, not just of the space in the organisation, which is commented on often, that it's just as likely that I'll greet you than anyone else in the organisation, that there's that type of space sharing, but time also. And I think creative clusters and other ways we work mean that everybody should understand what the big picture is about. And they have a stake in the long-term momentum, forward momentum of the organisation. They've had a chance to speak about it. We know their views. 
all that has been taken into consideration regardless of their role. We're sitting here in the store of Glasgow Women's Library, perched on chairs, having a, a great conversation. And we can see some of the collection around us. And I was really interested to read about the idea of feminist ethical collection strategy. So can you talk about what that means in practice and, and how you've come to have some of these amazing objects in the library? It sounds as though it's something that is really got terrific theoretical and intellectual rigour <laughs> and it doesn't. All collections to a degree are subjectively gathered, aren't they? And they do reflect the interests and the the shifting dynamics within an organisational structure and, and power. We see this here, you know, that almost if you think about it in terms of uh, a kaleidoscope of people, you know, that or a mosaic of people at any given time determining the collecting strategies and emphases. We do collect from all over the world, but we do focus on Scottish campaigning materials. We do focus on suffragette, uh, the suffragette period. We do focus on uh, actually collecting a significant amount of, of visual arts stuff and writers' works, and, and we have some priorities as well in our collecting strategy. But I think that the communities that actually fuel the, the collection, so almost like the people who come into our orbit, so, for example, you might get a whole load of women who are really, really mobilised on the WASPy issue. Mm -hmm. Or at a certain point in, in our history, we had masses and masses of lesbian activism going on. Uh, I mean, that's a sort of like, that's happening generally, but there might be an influx of people who are really interested in that, or there might be lots of LGBTQ activism. And, and sometimes that's sort of tidal in terms of a political landscape that's happening and we will do lots more we do lots more rapid response stuff now but at the moment I still like to sort of feel like we're open to our communities determining the uh, direction of travel in terms of collecting now we, we've been fortunate in having a collections team who are unbelievably flexible but yeah I think that the crux is going to come when the inevitably the stores fill you know so <laughs> that's an issue and that's absolutely something that's a concern for the wider sector and the museums association so we've been thinking a lot about disposal my new mantra is disposal's not a dirty word it is part of active collections management but yet there are lots of museums that where the stalls are full so you know how do you and i see museums as kind of living breathing organisms you breathe in and you breathe out stuff comes in and it must go back out the door as well and part of that is sharing with communities but sometimes it's just letting go so do is that kind of the practice that you're evolving I've been so excited to be following that stream of discussion, Sean, that you've been sort of shepherding over, over the last wee while and, and sharing with us. And it's just so brilliant because it actually chimes with a lot of the, I suppose, more sort of feminist leadership thinking that I've been able to do over the last wee while that's really around growth and anti-growth. I think coming out of the Claw um, Fellowship, uh, Leadership Fellowship, I'm now firmly committed to an anti-growth in terms of having a bigger and bigger edifice and a bigger and bigger capital thing and so on and so forth and the sort of star architect driven type of 
thing that we see that's characterised a lot of the, the sexual development, you know, maybe in the last decade and the decade before, I was thinking about um, CPD and staff development here and this really flat structure. And in amongst that thinking, I'm thinking, OK, we have lots of different responses from individuals and groups saying, we want you to help us. We're setting up a new resource or we're trying to develop a zine library or we're trying to do that, you know, and thinking rather than saying we're going to build a bigger and bigger stores and lots and lots more visitors, that maybe one of the aspects of our, our role going forward is for uh, colleagues, volunteers, clusters of staff to actually go and work with others who are trying to seed something or maybe as you're saying you know it might be a, a museum that's reinventing itself and would like to add to its collection items that are you know f that needs to fill a gap where there hasn't been representation and I'm really excited about the way that those two things could work that you're getting staff getting refreshed and obviously bringing new learning back into the library it's not a one-way street I'm thinking about this in the context of this febrile political landscape where I reckon that a lot of the countercultural organisations that are setting up, how many of them uh, have the acumen that certainly I didn't have, uh, you know, to sustain and develop organisations? I mean, it's happened here. We have been sustained and it, we have kept going. But certainly I felt really a deficit of knowledge about management, about all these things and it feels like you know it would be great to be able to think about these new fledgling organizations really being able to be robust in the in for, in the years ahead and also so to be able to be sustained with some of the learning that myself and lots of other colleagues around the sector have to share with them I love that idea, Adele. So it's about growing your influence rather than growing your physical size and also growing your connections and growing your networks and growing outside of the institution, but via people. That's an absolutely amazing way of thinking about it. And also could bring that those fresh voices into museums and other organisations up and down the country in Scotland and beyond. So yeah, we'd be really into exploring that practice. Can we talk a little bit about the impact on Glasgow of Glasgow Women's Library on the wider uh, sector in Scotland because I know you developed your equality in progress framework and that's been a bit of a turning point maybe for the sector how far have you got with that and, and how has that echoed through the museum sector? It's been a, a real departure so maybe the last four or five years we've been actively doing work with colleagues and I suppose it's in recognition that uh, the EDI training as that is out there arguably has a limited impact. I feel really positive about it. I think this uh, week, for example, I've been um, doing training with a really uh, a big publisher in Scotland and next week doing work with um, Scottish Sculpture Workshop. And, you know, we've not done as much work with the museums as I would like. We did some work with uh, Glasgow Life, that's the arm's length organisation in Glasgow that sort of uh, oversees the cultural offer. Uh, I would love to work more with the museums. I think one thing that's disappointed me over the last few while is, again, I suppose it's a feminist approach to thinking about this training model. One of the things that we've been... Rachel Thane Gray, who developed this uh, programme with me 
that we've been really keen to do is to sort of recognise that the experts on this terrain are those that have got lived experience of discrimination and how the sector has made them feel when they've wanted to access or maybe have just been oblivious of the museum offer or whatever. And, And these are really the people who I feel it would be great to work with to train the trainers, as it were. And we've been trying to bid for funding over the last few while to try and uh, again, develop and incubate a group that could lead on this training going forward. And it's been really interesting because we do, I'm happy to say, have a fair bit of su- success in trying to raise funding, but it's an area we've had three unsuccessful funding bids for this. And I just wonder about almost like the mechanisms that are in place and the awareness of funders of what how impactful this type of thing might be clearly we need to go back to the drawing board and think this through further but what i would love to see is the equality and progress being held and developed by people who really have had that experience of of discrimination one form or another and can think about that passion-led transformational work with others and yeah, maybe there's some complacency and lip service from the funders and, and some of the strategic bodies. And we need to unpick that as a sector. We need feminist leadership, perhaps, in some of those organisations. It would be remiss of me, Adele, to not mention the nomination for our Fund Museum of the Year. What impact did that have on the organisation? Do you know, the further we get away from, from it, the more I'm sort of feeling like, you know, that it was impactful on lots of different registers. I think I feel really proud of of the team and sort of thinking that that could be a possibility that we could apply and then going through the process of applying. One of the things that I do feel a residual glow around it, um, we at least situated an equalities-focused, values-led museum unequivocally in that sort of roster that goes around each year. And it's not to say that there weren't loads and loads of fantastic museums that had really brilliant equalities-led practice as part of the work that they were doing. But And, and obviously, uh, being a Scottish-based museum, that was important for us as well to sort of like be in that mix. I think it was really great in terms of after the 25th anniversary of the Women's Library, that's quite a sobering thing when you think if anybody passes a quarter century of doing anything, it's quite a sort of like, you know, reflective thing kicks in. And I suppose for me, it was sort of like combining with privately thinking, this is really great that this, the, the journey travelled and that there was recognition there. And I think it was unbelievably morale boosting for our team. I was, I suppose, especially not winning, you know, <laughs> to have had this sort of, support for a museum like ours because so many museums have got very hybrid practices now and very multifaceted dimensions to their work and I suppose that was another milestone really in in having us in there because I think there are plenty of museums that are are really risk-taking in their practice and and actually thinking in a really expanded way about the way that they work so I suppose it was another sort of like signal of recognition of that I suppose I'm most proud of the dossier that followed, you know, that after the win, we were just just thinking how how might we encourage more museums that might not feel that they could be in the running for something like this to apply. So 
the dossier is still there. I mean, I'm sure times are rapidly changing, but there might still be things in there that people could use thinking about their own approaches to something like this. It was absolutely brilliant that you were nominated and shortlisted. Did you ever get a sense that maybe you were too radical for the Art Fund Museum of the Year? Absolutely. Absolutely. Unequivocally. I think there was a failure of nerve and and a lack of awareness, I think, across the, the panel that year. I think that's part and parcel of anything that is maverick or pioneering or changing things up. I think that there's an unbelievable momentum for change. That's going to continue, you know. So I think there's there's a, a legacy of sorts there. You've you've set your course as Glasgow Women's Library and said what you are going to be and also what you're not going to be in terms of expansion. But I'm still interested in that question for those of us and our listeners that work in the wider sector in those traditional hierarchical structured organisations. How do they get to make change and, and what advice you'd give to them about feminist practice and leadership in the museum sector? The space invaders. Do you know, I feel like... The, one of the exercises that we did uh, when we were in London, uh, I thought was a really interesting one that was around what are the blockers for getting over the stuck areas that people are encountering, mainly in the mainstream institutions, although it can happen in a, any, any organisation. Um, and I think that there's been a developed almost like a cache of knowledge now uh, in the sector from there being almost like a consciousness about power on a different register. I'd say over the last 40 years, there's been a growing body of knowledge of how to overcome very specific ways of blocking and then really structural ways of blocking. So that might be how to deal with an individual who is is squashing, you know, feminist agency or or progressive thinking and an organisation through to the sort of like systemic structural stuff. It feels like there are so many people working on so many different registers and we're finding that some of them are in positions of ultimate authority in the institution. So it doesn't mean that they can immediately start, you know, dismantling the master's house or detoxing the institution from, you know, in root and branch. But I think we're seeing that process happening. And I know that some colleagues are explicitly saying that they, they're going to use feminist governance approaches. In Scotland, certainly, the government are unequivocal about what they want to see. The funders are unequivocal about what they want to see. So, uh, and part of it is about demonstrating change on all the registers that feminists want to see happen. So I think we're pushing an open door in that respect. So feminist leadership, there are a lot of definitions out there and I know I've looked them up. Could you summarise it in a way that people can understand, maybe using some adjectives I would say that it's dialogistic. So it's, oh, now, hang on right, a minute. What does so, that mean? I mean, maybe, I think it feels like there's three things that need to be in place that actually characterise feminist leadership approach, but actually characterise the best non-profit, you know, uh, cultural and other organisations, the award-winning organisations, the ones that have got uh, sustainability built in. I think the first characteristic is an organisation that 
everyone in the organisation has got a stake in the vision, the mission and the values and that equality, diversity and inclusion roots the whole thing. So that's not just a feminist organisation, that is like the best organisations I think have that. The second thing is that everybody really clearly understands their roles and responsibilities in relation to that. For me, that means that there's not one person carrying the EDI weight in the organisation, that everybody understands that their role, whether it's front of house team or marketing or finance or whatever, they're carrying the responsibilities, not just for the equalities um proofed values-led momentum for the organisation, but also the environmental responsibilities that we all have now. And then thirdly, that idea, I mentioned dialogistic, all I mean by that is really that there is a a structure within the organisation that really does mean that there's pause points, reflection points, an opportunity for people to say things, for people to be heard for there to be a a coaching culture, an active listening culture in the organisation. I say that, that's a tricky thing. You know, that is a really tricky thing to hear things and to take it on board and to move forward positively. So that, that really, for me, is what a feminist leadership approach is. Brilliant. I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you very much, Adele. You've been listening to the Space Invaders podcast, a collaboration produced by the Space Invaders campaign to claim equal space for women in museums. This episode was presented by me, Sharon Heal, and produced by Lucy Harland. As this is our first podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts on how we can take this forward. You can find out more about our campaign by searching for Museum Space Invaders or follow us on Twitter at mspaceinvaders. That's M for museums. Thank you for listening.